Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory for our first public evening lecture of the spring 2013 semester. And we also welcome you watching this lecture on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or the streaming link at as.arizona.edu. I'm saying this for the podcast. Uh, it is a cold night here in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, we're glad that you were able to weather the cold and come out to the lecture this evening. Um, first of all, the telescope will be open. I have my, my uh, undergraduate operators come in at 8.30, and they will open the 21-inch telescope. It's going to be cold, though, so I, I will understand it if uh, no one wants to go up to the telescope, but let me tell you, on cold nights like this, that's when the seeing is the best, and you might get a very good view of Jupiter tonight through the 21-inch telescope. Um, so here's the schedule. You may wonder why I don't have, I usually have flyers with a list of the schedule to, to hand out. I have had a devil of a time finding speakers for this semester. First time, I've been doing this since 1999. This is the first semester I've had a hard time. Uh, in fact, Professor Poss just told me an hour ago that he would do the, le the next lecture on February 4th. And that will be about plurality of worlds. He's going to talk about the whole history in philosophy and science of the human race of thinking about other Earths and whether life might exist on other planets, from Lucretius all the way up to the recent Kepler mission, which is finding planets orbiting other stars. Uh, Professor Shirley will speak on April the 1st, and I have at least two other speakers who have said they would talk, they just haven't given me which date they want yet. So for those of you who love to attend these lectures, please check our website. Also, for the first time in the back of the room, I have a little clipboard with a sign-up sheet. If you want to give us your name and email address, we decided we're going to start a little listserv for patrons of the public evening talks so that if, for example, I have to decide, oh, February 18th, I couldn't find a speaker, I can send out a, an email to everyone letting them know that there's no talk or telling them, yes, I found a speaker and it's John Smith or whatever, all right? So please feel free, uh, and you can also check a box if you want other information about Stewart Observatory and the things that we do here. However, I am planning something special for April 22nd. Um, Stewart Observatory was officially dedicated on April the 23rd of 1923. So we will be celebrating our 90th anniversary, uh, and the night before the eve, April 22nd, is a Monday night. So I'm trying to find a very dynamic speaker, and if I can't, we'll at least have a great historical presentation, and I promise birthday cake, okay? Because you have to uh, have cake if you're going to celebrate anyone's birthday, even in observatories. Yep, that's right, 90 candles. So, uh, because I could not find a speaker for this evening, you got me. Uh, what I usually do when I'm in this situation is I pull a lecture from my STARS course. I teach a Tier 2 course called Astronomy 203 here at the University of Arizona. I'm teaching it this semester over at the Flandreau Planetarium. And uh, I just pull out one of my lectures and I give it. So you're going to get a talk tonight, not really on recent state-of-the-art research, but on uh, a topic that... Uh, it's historical and astrophysical and nuclear physical. And uh, you'll get a chance to see what we do in the classroom 
here at the university. And as you see, I love to include audience participation and demonstrations. And for those of you watching on the podcast, unfortunately, you won't be able to see the demonstration that I'm doing because I don't have a video camera on me. So without further ado, let's talk about the subject of tonight's lecture, which is why does the sun shine? Which is a lecture I give midway through my course when we spend three class units on the sun. This is a question that has bothered humans for a very long time. Now, in the very old days, most of the things that happened in the sky were attributed to gods or mythology or religion. And you can go back to all sorts of tales. The Greek thought that the uh, sun was a flaming chariot that Apollo drove across the sky. But uh, as far as we can tell, this question was first seriously addressed from a scientific point of view in the mid-19th century by this gentleman. His name was William Thompson, but you may know him better by his noble name because he was a peer of the British realm. He was Lord Kelvin. Now, Lord Kelvin is famous for a few things in physics. Kelvin, for example, invented the absolute temperature scale. He is the one that showed that the concept of absolute zero wasn't just valid for gases, but for all objects, and he decided to create a temperature scale with no negative temperatures, right? Where the coldest temperature that can exist, we call it absolute zero. at zero degrees Kelvin. He also, though, gave us the formula. He didn't invent, I'm sorry, I don't mean to say it, the second law of thermodynamics, but he was the first one to really state the second law of thermodynamics. Now, for those of you who have taken some physics, you know that the second law of thermodynamics is the entropy one, right? The one that entropy is increasing all the time. I could never understand entropy, to be honest, uh, especially trying to explain it in just plain old terms without pulling out a chalkboard and writing equations. But entropy and the second law really tell us about what happens when two systems with different temperatures come into contact. And generally what will happen, the upshot of the second law of thermodynamics, is that heat will naturally flow from a hotter object to a cooler object. Now you may think, duh, that's obvious. Yes, but that was not obvious in 1850. It certainly wasn't obvious in 1750, okay? And this is where I, just to show you that I'm not blowing smoke in your direction, I have a little demonstration here where I have two beakers of water. If this young lady, what is your name? Marie, would you like to come up here? I would just like you to verify for the audience and for our viewers watching on iTunes, all right? They can't, so that's why we need you to tell them. Oh, and uh, here, just so that you can be heard on the podcast, I am giving, yeah, here we go. Now, I just, be careful. I want you to confirm that this beaker has ice water, icy cold water, and this beaker has boiling hot water in it. Yeah, this beaker's cold as hell. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Usually it's cold as Alaska, but that's fine. All right. Thank you. So we have the very hot and the very cold. Now what I have here is a little motor with a propeller that's connected to these two metal probes. 
However, as you can see, there is no battery at all attached to this motor. So what's going to happen when I place one of the probes in the boiling hot water and the other probe in the ice water? Unfortunately, I have an ice cube right below the probe, so it's not going to lay. Let's move that ice cube. And give it a moment. Come on, ice cube, move. I have to spill some ice water. There we go. Let me make sure that's pushed up forward. Ah, look at that. what's happening is heat, which is a form of energy, is moving from the beaker of boiling water through the metal probe, but notice how between the two probes we have them insulated. So the heat is basically generating a current in this metal. It's feeding through that motor. It's doing work. But not all of the heat is turned into work. That was the whole idea of the second law of thermodynamics. Some of that heat is going to make its way over to the cold water. This is, in physics terms, the ice cold water would be called the sink, okay, the heat sink. And we'll just keep it going there. And Marie, you just now and then keep an eye on it. And when it stops turning, just shout out, stop me, okay? If, and let me know when that stops turning. So, what I just showed you was that Lord Kelvin knew what he was talking about, right? Heat would move from hot object to a cold object. But while he was doing his work on thermodynamics, Kelvin applied this to the sun. You see, the sun was a hot object out in the middle of cold space. According to the second law of thermodynamics, energy should, heat should leave the sun. And we know it does because we get some of that heat. Not today, but usually we do, okay? Um, so, the sun had shown throughout all of recorded human history, and probably before. So thanks to the second law of thermodynamics, Kelvin implied the sun has to have an energy source. There has to be something that's, put, that, that's, that's inputting new energy into the sun. Because if not, the sun shouldn't be shining anymore. It would come to an equilibrium with its surroundings and would be cold. So. What did Calvin think the answer was to the question? Well, one of the first things he did, Calvin knew the mass and the luminosity of the sun. The mass happens to be about 2 times 10 to the 30th kilograms. That's a 2 with 30 zeros after it, okay, kilograms. And what is its luminosity? In watts, it's about 4. It's actually 3.9, but we'll round that off to 4. 4 times 10 to the 26 watts. 10 to the 26. That's 4 with 26 zeros. Or if you want to put it into words, well, 10 to the 12 is a trillion. So a trillion trillion would be 10 to the 12 times 10 to the 12, which is 10 to the 24. And then another 10 to the 2 is 100 which would be 400. So 400 trillion trillion. 400 trillion trillion watts. So back then, he knew that. And of course, Kelvin was living right in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And what was the primary energy source 
for the Industrial Revolution? Coal. Coal. Right. So, did the sun, was the sunlight and the sun's energy powered by a chemical reaction, which is what you get when you burn coal? Well, again, he knew the mass of the sun, he knew the luminosity of the sun. And they knew how much energy was produced by a kilogram of coal. So, if the sun were burning coal at a rate of 3.9 times 10 to the 26 watts, what he did is he took, let's say, the mass of the sun, let's have a mass of coal equal to the mass of the sun. And then he converted that into the amount of energy you would get from burning that amount of coal, and he divided that energy by the rate at which the sun was shining energy, because watts is energy per second, joules per second. He calculated that the sun would exhaust all of its coal fuel in 3,000 years. Now, even back then, they knew that the Earth was more than 3,000 years old, because recorded history had gone back further than that. Right? The Great Pyramids of Giza were constructed in 2800 BC, more or less. So already, you know, that's almost 5,000 years of, of human history. So he knew that couldn't be the answer. It's not a chemical reaction. What other forces did physicists and scientists know about, natural forces, besides chemical reactions, which arise from the electromagnetic force? Well, there's gravity. Scientists knew about gravity. They'd known about it all, you know, since Newton. Well, Kelvin reckoned that the sun shone via the conversion of gravitational energy, that the sun was slowly contracting. And when a massive object contracts, something called gravitational potential energy is converted into heat. We know that when we compress a gas, when we compress most objects in astrophysics, they will heat up as long as there's nothing else messing with the system. So he just used Newton's laws of gravity. And using Newton's laws, he took the total energy available for a body with the mass and the radius of the sun, gm over r, actually it's gm squared, excuse me, over r, but he took that and divided it by the solar luminosity. So again, using Newton's law of gravity, he, found, he, he calculated how much energy could be produced by a mass, the mass of the sun, and divide that by the solar luminosity. He got an age of 3 times 10 to the 7, or 30 million years. The sun would exhaust all of its gravitational energy in 30 million years. That sounded fine to him. 30 million years? Yeah. Yeah. We probably haven't been around that long. So, problem solved. One problem, though. Kelvin's age for the sun conflicted with studies being done by evolutionary biologists. One evolutionary biologist in particular, and you probably know his name. In The Origin of Species, Charles Darwin used geological data to estimate that the Earth was at least 3 times 10 to the 8, or 300 million years old, at least. So there's a problem. If the Earth were 300 million years old, then the sun had to shine for more than 30 million years. And Kelvin's 
solution to why the sunshine can't be right. It can't be all gravitational energy. Because the Earth and life on Earth can't exist without the sun. So the sun has to have shown longer than the age of the Earth. Now, I don't think Kelvin worried too much about this. Because again, in the food chain of scientists, physicists sort of see themselves at the top, right? And you know, so he, he didn't, he wasn't too worried about what this guy Darwin was saying, okay? But it wasn't just Darwin. Geologists, you know, they, they continuing to study the rock record, studying the earth. It became more of a consensus that, yes, the earth is probably older than 300 million years old. So that isn't why the sun shines. But by the end of the 19th century, scientists, especially astrophysicists, were hard put to come up with the reason why. Um, because they ran out of options. Well, we did gravity, we did the electromagnetic force, that's basically chemical reactions. So what could happen? What could be the answer? Well, if gravity was insufficient, what was the source of the sun's energy? It was a mystery. Now, in 1896, there was a French physicist named Henri Becquerel. He discovered something called radioactivity. The fact that matter can spontaneously emit matter, uh, energy, excuse me, matter can spontaneously emit energy, especially certain types of matter like elements, uranium, and radium, they would emit energy spontaneously. That meant there was a new force in town, the nuclear force. And in the early part of the 20th century, many chemists like the Curies and physicists studied this new force of nature, the nuclear force, which eventually they came to realize is the force that holds the subatomic particles together in the nucleus of an atom, hence the term nuclear energy. I'm just wondering if the lights are maybe a little too bright to see. Let's see if I bring them down one notch. Can you still take notes? Yeah? Okay. So, in 1905, a gentleman by the name of Albert Einstein, there he is, though that's not what he looked like in 1905, uh, Albert Einstein formulated that matter could be completely converted into energy. It, the, this derivation resulted from his special theory of relativity. And we all know the equation, E equals mc squared. In fact, if you read the University of Arizona's webpage and their news organization, uh, today they were highlighting a story where one of my colleagues in the physics department is suggesting that perhaps E equals mc squared doesn't hold in all situations and proposing an experiment and so on. So, uh, but Einstein said that if matter could be completely converted into energy, you would get the amount of energy equal to the amount of matter times the speed of light squared. Now, the speed of light's a big number. That means the speed of light squared is an even bigger number. So you could take a tiny bit of matter, multiply it by a really big number, and get a really large amount of energy. So here's potentially one way that small amounts of energy, or small amounts of matter could be converted into large amounts of energy. 
That's just what I said there. Right. It's a very big number. So a little bit of mass can provide a lot of energy. Now, in 1920, a gentleman named Aston actually measured the masses of atoms. He measured the mass of the hydrogen atom, and he measured the mass of the helium atom. Now, we, can, we know that atoms consist of a nucleus, which have protons and neutrons in them, and then the electrons orbit them. But for the purpose of this conversation, we can kind of forget about the electrons, because the mass of the electrons is insignificant compared to the mass of the neutrons and the protons. So, what he found was the mass of a hydrogen atom times four does not equal the mass of the helium atom. Now, the hydrogen atom contains one particle in its nucleus, a proton, most hydrogen. The normal helium atom contains four particles in its nucleus, two neutrons, two protons. So, you might simple-mindedly think, even if the mass of a neutron isn't exactly equal to the mass of a proton, that roughly four hydrogen atom masses should equal one helium atom mass. Because the helium atom has four nuclear particles, hydrogen has one. Turns out, the mass of the helium atom is less than four hydrogen atoms. It's 99.3% the mass of four hydrogen atoms. Now, this result led this gentleman, who was one of the foremost astrophysicists of the early 20th century. His name was Sir Arthur Eddington. When he saw this, and knowing about Einstein's equation e equals mc squared, he thought, gee, that's interesting. If I could take four hydrogen atoms and turn them into a helium atom, 0.7% of the mass isn't there. And if that mass could somehow be converted, this missing mass, into energy via Einstein's equation, so say the mass of the sun, which he knew, is made up of hydrogen. If that gets converted into helium, I take 0.7% of the mass, multiply it by c squared, and divide that by the luminosity of the sun, then the sun could be powered for 10 to the 11 years, or 100 billion years. Now that's a number that I don't think anyone could argue that the Earth was older than that, okay? In fact, as we know now, our universe isn't that old. Now, of course, he was off by a factor of 10. Some of you may know, especially those of you who have taken an astronomy class, that we estimate it will take the sun 10 billion years, 10 to the 10 years, to convert all of its hydrogen in its core to helium, and that's the difference. It turns out the sun is only turning hydrogen into helium in its core. And Eddington did his calculation for the mass of the entire sun. Turns out the core of the sun is about 10%, the mass of the entire sun. So all you have to do is take that number and divide by 10 to get the right answer, which is 10 billion years. But that's all well and good, but that's just speculation. You have to have a theoretical physical model and hopefully some experimental evidence or to back it up to show how you get from four hydrogen atoms to one helium atom. That wasn't known in the 1920s when Eddington suggested this. 
still turning. Yeah, cool. Here's the problem. It's simple to say, oh, four hydrogen atoms, which are four protons, can collide and form a helium. Problem is, hydrogen nucleus, which is a proton, has what kind of charge? Positive. Now, as children, we've all played with magnets. And you realize that there are two poles to a magnet, right? A positive pole and a negative pole. And what happens when you two, put two positive poles together? I'm putting this, let's see if I can do it sideways. Here you can see I have the positive and negative of these two magnets, and you can see how they stick together. And look how they stick together. But now let me turn around so I have two positives. And look at that. In fact, on here, let's see here. I can actually make it float. See how the magnet one floats above the other? I push it down to make them touch, and it pops back up. Because two positive charges will magnetically repel each other. So every time two protons come near each other, as soon as they get too close, the magnetic repulsion pushes them away. So how can I get them to touch each other? I can't even get these two magnets to touch each other. You see, they pop apart. So how does that work? The question was solved, actually, in 1928 by a gentleman named George Gamma. And this is something that actually is called quantum tunneling. But the very simple-minded way that I present this to general education students in my class is that, as you can see, at low speeds, electromagnetic propulsion prevents the collision of two protons, of two hydrogen nuclei. Okay? What Gamov realized was that if the temperature of the plasma is hot enough, that means the velocity at which the protons approach each other is fast enough. It can actually overcome the magnetic repulsion. And I like to think of, you see, the nuclear force will connect two nuclear particles together, be they protons or neutrons, but they have to be very close to each other. Because the mag at, at a large distance, the magnetic repulsion is dominant. But if you can somehow get them close enough to touch, it's almost like they're covered in Velcro. The magnetic repulsion keeps the two Velcro balls apart. But if you can somehow force them to touch, the Velcro takes over and keeps them stuck together. And that's the nuclear force. Now, in reality, that's a very simple-minded way of saying it. In reality, it's something called quantum tunneling, and it has to do with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. The fact that you can think of particles as waves. We always have been taught that light can be thought of as a particle, a photon, or a wave. But some very bright people like de Broglie in the 1920s hypothesized, well, wait a minute, if we can think of light as a particle and a wave, why can't we think of particles of matter as light and waves? And if you think about protons as waves, and the fact that you can never tell exactly the same place and the same momentum 
at the same time of a particle, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, there's a certain probability that particles can pass through barriers and that a proton can pass through the magnetic barrier, keeping it away from its sister proton, okay? But I kind of like the Velcro thing because you can kind of get that. Imagine two magnetized balls, they're gonna push apart, but if you really make them go fast enough to overcome that, once they touch, Okay, you don't care about the magnetism anymore. They're stuck together. And Gamow calculated the temperature is about 7 million degrees. You needed a temperature of 7 million degrees Kelvin for two protons to actually get close enough so that the nuclear force becomes stronger than the magnetic repulsion and to stick the two protons together. Now we're getting close. We're starting to see a physical way to combine atoms of hydrogen to build heavier elements. Now, in 1938, this gentleman, who actually I knew, I was an undergrad at Cornell, and Professor Beta uh, was a, a professor emeritus in 1978 when I got to Cornell. Uh, he solved the mystery of the nuclear reaction that actually causes the sun to shine. We call it the PP, or proton-proton chain. And for this work, uh, later on, I think it was sometime in the 1960s, Professor Beta received the Nobel Prize in Physics for this work. Uh, he was a refugee from Nazi Germany. He left uh, Germany when the Nazis took over and came to Cornell. And he, I even met him several times. He was, even though he was retired, he would show up to functions in the physics department to talk to students. And he only passed away, I think it was in 2006. I mean, he lived into his late 90s. So, uh, but we credit him with coming up with the actual uh, uh, route, the actual process, thank you, the chain through which protons can, or hydrogen atoms, I'm gonna use those terms interchangeably, proton, hydrogen atom, can turn into helium. But first, before we get into it, I would like to make a few definitions. It's still turning. <clears throat> there are two types of nuclear reactions. There is nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is a reaction where heavier nuclei are created by combining or fusing lighter nuclei. You build heavier elements from lighter elements, heavier atoms from lighter atoms. That's opposed to nuclear fission. Nuclear fission is a reaction where lighter nuclei are created by splitting heavier nuclei. Now, that's the process that we harness here on Earth in nuclear reactors, is nuclear fission. And that's because you don't need a high temperature for nuclear fission, because you're breaking something apart. You just need a way to break it apart. But to get hydrogen to turn into helium, you need that seven million degree temperature. Well. If you need, if you want to generate energy, um, you've got to have energy to begin with. You've got to find some way to generate that energy to make the hydrogen turn to helium. That's why the whole cold fusion thing was a big, you know, excitement when they thought they had solved it and it turned out it was not happening. But, you know, if, the, if, if we could find a way to turn hydrogen into helium at a low temperature, you know, without having to put too much energy into the process, that would be uh, a way to generate energy for our needs. And of course, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So again, here the protons are red, so two lighter atoms 
forming a heavier atom, that's fusion. Taking a very heavy atom and breaking it into two lighter ones, that's fission. And in both cases, energy is released. Now, I also have to tell you about neutrons. So far, I've been talking about protons. That's what hydrogen is. It's a proton with an electron traveling around it. Neutrons are not stable, unlike the proton. They are not stable particles. They do not exist alone for long. Neutrons are only stable when they are bound inside the nucleus of an atom. On their own, single, naked, lonely neutrons last about 10 minutes. That's about it, 10 minutes. If a neutron isn't absorbed into another atom, it will turn into a proton within 10 minutes. But what happens is if a neutron turns into a proton, notice you have to have balance in these decays. We don't call this a reaction, we call it a decay, because an object, a particle, is spontaneously turning into another particle. But the neutron has no charge. The proton has a charge. So a negative charge has to be spawned somewhere to balance it. That's the electron. When a neutron turns into a proton, it spits out a negatively charged electron, and it also spits out something called an anti-neutrino. This is what is known as beta minus decay. Now, the reason it's called that, again, it's archaic, old, early 20th century terminology. When Madame Curie and her husband started studying radioactive elements, they would see these particles being emitted from them. Now, at those days, in the 1890s and the 19-aughts, they didn't know what these particles were. So they just said, oh, let's call them alpha, beta, and gamma. Well, what they called the beta particle turned out to be an electron. So in old-fashioned physics slang, a beta particle is an electron. So beta minus decay means electron decay, right? It's, and that's what happens. The neutron spits out an electron when it turns into a proton. Now that will happen spontaneously. If a neutron is somehow created on its own, it will do that within 10 minutes unless it's absorbed by a bigger atom. The opposite can also happen. A proton can be forced to turn into a neutron. But notice, this is not a spontaneous process. Protons won't do that on their own. They have to be forced by the nuclear force to do it. And if I turn a proton into a neutron, again, I have to balance charge. I'm turning a positive particle into a neutral particle. So that positive charge has to go somewhere. It goes out into a particle that looks like an electron, has the mass of an electron, it smells like an electron, it even tastes like an electron, but it's got a positive charge. That's what's called antimatter, right? That's the anti-electron, we call it the positron, but it's a particle of antimatter. And at the same time, a particle called a neutrino is emitted when this happens. This reaction, which is called, even though it's not a decay, it's called beta plus decay. Okay, because when it happens inside an atom, you actually see a positron come out or a positively charged beta particle, a positive electron. So when that happens, we say that a decay has happened. And again, this little particle that's represented by the Greek letter nu, nu for N for neutral, is the neutrino. I believe that name was given by Enrico Fermi, right? Because neutrino, it means the little, the little neutral one. It is a weakly interacting particle which has almost no mass and travels nearly at the speed of light. 
So when these neutrino particles are generated in these reactions, they just zoom right out of the sun because they don't react with anything. That's why they're very difficult to detect because it's hard to catch neutrinos. And actually, if we have time at the end of the lecture, I actually have a few things to say about neutrinos because neutrinos, even though they're so hard to find, that's our evidence. Everything I'm going to show you now happens inside the core of the sun. With optical light, with any type of light, we can't see into the core of the sun. The only way that we know that beta was right is that we see neutrinos streaming out of the core of the sun. That's our direct evidence for the nuclear reactions that occur in the sun. So let's go to the proton-proton chain now. I'm going to do this in steps through this animation, all right? Step one, we have two protons that are moving fast enough so they'll actually connect to each other. Step one happens. When step one happens, beta plus decay occurs. The nuclear force, for, for, uh, nuclear force forces one of those protons to turn into a neutron. But we know that when a proton turns into a neutron, you spit out, and so people on iTunes can see, I'll use the cursor here, you spit out a positron, which is an antimatter particle, and you spit out a neutrino. Now watch what happens to that positron. Boom! That positron doesn't last long. As Mr. Spock said to Captain Kirk in the episode, uh, The Alternative Factor, when two identical particles of matter and antimatter meet, annihilation, total, complete annihilation. That's what happens. That positron doesn't go very far before it finds a free electron. They come together, they destroy each other, they turn into gamma photons, but energy is generated. Matter got turned into energy. Okay? Thanks to matter-antimatter. So now I have created a particle that is still officially a hydrogen atom because its atomic number is one. It's got one proton. But now it's got an extra neutron in that nucleus. This is what is called in chemistry an isotope, right? This is an isotope of hydrogen, which we call deuterium. I like to call it for my students heavy hydrogen. It's hydrogen with an atomic mass of two because there's a neutron in there. Now, it doesn't go very far before it finds another hydrogen atom, another proton. And when that proton reacts with the heavy hydrogen, they stick together, and you saw a little photon, a little gamma photon is emitted. And now I have an element, an atom nucleus, that has two protons and one neutron. Now, two protons means atomic number two. Now we've got helium. But this isn't normal helium. This is an isotope of helium called helium-3, or light helium, because it only has one neutron. Now, those first two steps have to happen twice, because then the next step, the third and final step in the proton-proton chain, is two helium-3s. You see this other helium-3 over here? You've got two protons and a neutron about to meet another two protons and a neutron. When they collide, Two protons or two hydrogens are spit out, and what you have left is helium-4. Normal helium, two protons, two neutrons. Plus, you throw out two hydrogen atoms, two protons. Now, if you were an accountant, this is how you would see what would happen. Well, what went into the reaction? Actually, six hydrogen atoms went into the reaction, because look what happens. Here's two hydrogens, okay? 
And then in step two, a third hydrogen comes in, right? But now this step has to happen twice. These two steps have to happen twice for the third step to happen. So two times three is six. So in the entire chain, we have brought in six hydrogen atoms. And incidentally, two electrons were wasted by annihilating two positrons. And what comes out of the reaction? Let's go to the final step. Well, what we, here's the last step where the two helium-3s are, are, are combined with each other. What comes out is one helium, two hydrogens, and also we get two neutrinos and four gamma-ray photons. Now, if you look at that, what goes in? Six hydrogens. What comes out? A helium and two hydrogens. What's six minus two? Four. Effectively, four hydrogen nuclei are converted into one helium nucleus and energy is released. <coughs> Oops, there it is. Boom. So there's what you see. Four hydrogen atoms effectively combine to form one helium and energy. And that energy is released in the form of gamma ray photons of light. My next page, actually, it's just the same thing all over again with different. I have found that, especially in teaching general education science courses, if you don't know what that means, that means I teach students who are English majors, music majors, business majors, education majors, social sciences, you know, psychology, political science. I teach them astronomy. So I have found the best way is to repeat myself over and over again. So all I'm doing is showing you the same reaction. Step one, two protons come together to form heavy hydrogen. Then over here, you've got the heavy hydrogen combining with another hydrogen to give you helium-3 or helium light. That happens two times, and then the two helium lights come together to give you regular helium-4 and two hydrogens. Okay. Now, remember this. The mass of helium is 99.3% the mass of four hydrogens which we said go into the reaction. Four hydrogens go in, one helium goes out. In fact, this is a great little graphic. If I had a teeny tiny little balance and I have a hydrogen atom on this scale here, and here are four hydrogen atoms that represent the four hydrogen atoms that went into the reaction to form the helium, you are going to find that these four hydrogens do not balance the helium. In fact, they're heavier than the helium. So, what happened to that 0.7%? Or, as I, if I write it out as a decimal, it's 0.007. Right? That's how you remember it. Bond. James Bond. That's how you remember how much mass gets converted. And how did it get converted? Into energy <laughs> equals mc squared. Just like Sir Arthur Eddington did the calculation. He was right. But it's only 10% of the mass of the sun that's going to be totally converted into helium. Because the rest of the hydrogen isn't hot enough. The hydrogen in the upper layers of the sun is not hot enough. It's only in the core, which is about 10% of the mass of the sun, is, are, are the conditions hot enough and the pressure is great enough that the, this proton-proton chain can occur. Now, like everything in nuclear physics, it isn't that simple, <laughs> okay? The reaction I showed you, which is the proton-proton chain, and here it is written out in a static form. 
when two protons start the collision, the thing that I showed you where the two helium threes, the two helium lights come together to give you normal helium and two hydrogens, that happens 85% of the time. But it doesn't happen all the time. Actually, 14% of the time, once helium three is, is, is um, created after step one, instead of colliding or reacting with another helium three, it can react with a helium four that has already been created. Well, if you do that, both heliums have two protons. So bring them together, you're going to create an atom with four protons. That's beryllium, atomic number four. But there are only three neutrons, so it's beryllium seven. Beryllium seven, then, what will happen is there will be another one of those beta minus decays because beryllium seven is an unstable isotope. It's radioactive. So what happens? You spit out a positron. You turn one of the protons into a neutron. So instead of having three neutrons, four protons, you have four neutrons, three protons. Atomic number three is lithium. So beryllium-7 will become lithium-7. Notice the atomic mass number stays the same, because the total number of particles is the same. I've just turned one proton into a neutron. So now I have lithium. Lithium-7 will actually react with a hydrogen, a proton. And now I've got four protons and four neutrons. They'll break up into two helium-4. That will actually happen 14% of the time. And less than 1% of the time, if I create beryllium-7, before it has the opportunity to decay, beryllium-7 could actually react with a hydrogen. Now I go from an atom that has four protons and three neutrons to five protons and three neutrons. Well, atomic number five is boron. I can create the element boron, atomic number eight. Boron-8, however, is not stable, and it breaks apart into two helium-4s. But elements like beryllium and boron and lithium can also be temporarily created in these processes. But as you can see, that doesn't happen very often. All right, so now this is what I do in my class. I ask everyone to participate. So in a moment, a question will come up on the PowerPoint. It will be called a polling question. These little devices, we call them clickers. All of my students have one. It allows you to answer multiple choice questions. Okay, and you can pass one over to that young lady. And let's see, yes, can you? Now these are the old school clickers. That's why we have them around here. They're pretty, oh, another one, yep, there we go. So in a moment, you got yours there, okay, is a clicker for you, clicker for you two. Um, there's two clickers there, and there's two here, okay. Okay, let me get those, let me get these passed out. You get a clicker. So you're all gonna be able to answer questions, okay? And I'm gonna show you, I'll get more clickers. And in fact, I'll bring up the lighting level just a little bit so you can see the clicker face. There we go. Okay, let's see. People over here need clickers, right? You got one? How about back here? There we go. So you can see that once the question comes up, you're gonna press A, B, C, D. Okay, I'm coming over. 
for you. Did you get one? There and there. And then over here, we need clickers. Okay, how many do we need? Let me see. Raise your three. Three more. Thank you. All right. So this is what would happen in my class. You'll be asked not to talk to each other yet. Not to talk to each other yet. I want everyone to answer this question on their own without help from anyone. And it's going to be anonymous. It's not like I'm asking you to raise your hand, right? No one, know, no one else will know what you're answering. Here's the question. The chemical composition of the sun three billion years ago was different from what it is now in that it had blank. What did the sun have more of three billion years ago? Notice the flagpole goes up each time I get a, a, recept, a, uh, a response from someone. Looks like almost everyone's answered. Oh, we're up to 36, 37. Now here's how I do it in my class. The next thing I do is change the display. So you can't see the answers, but I can. And I can see your responses. Now, I can see that 69% of you got the right answer. Congratulations. But that's only 69%. That's a little more than 2 thirds. I want everyone to have it right. So here's what I want you to do. I have just brought the question up again. And by the way, polling is open again. I want you to talk to the people sitting around you. Those of you who are isolated, come on over and talk to someone. If you're, compare answers. If you think you're right, convince the people around you that you're right and that they should change their mind. If you were guessing, listen to what the people around you were saying, maybe you'll change your mind. You're allowed to vote again, and you can change your answer. Until I close polling out, I only take the last answer. So if you answer a second time, it overwrites your first answer. So go ahead and discuss it. Talk to gentlemen behind you, maybe see what they answered. I just started a 30-second timer. So finish up your discussions. You've got 25 more seconds. And answer a second time, please. And you're allowed to change your mind.
Okay, now first time around, we had 69% get it right. This time, 89% has it right. You see? I was able to get those of you who understood it to help me teach the people that were having a hard time. And also, those of you who knew it, you were able to reinforce your understanding. Because what's the best way to learn something? You have to teach someone else about it. All right, next question. Now, this one's a little bit harder. No, no discussion yet on this one. Okay. If the center of the sun could be heated slightly, the nuclear reactions would occur faster and hence release more energy. So the sun's core would what? If I could magically turn up the temperature in the core of the sun, the reactions would go faster and so more energy would be produced per second. can actually pause that for a moment. Now, there's no discussion yet. Everyone's got to answer on their own. There'll be plenty of time for discussion, unless 80% of you get it right this time. Okay, now, so once again, I'm going to switch the display so you can't see it. All right, 40, aha, I see, last one, 69% got it right the first time. This time, 46% of you. That's less than half. 46% of you got it right. So you've got, there's a 50-50 chance that you're talking to somebody who got it wrong, or you got it wrong. So you know what to do. Talk about it. Thirty second timer. Thirty more seconds to answer. All right, 46% had it right the first time. This time, the correct answer is B. 81% has it right. You see how we went from 43% to 81%. And in fact, 
This is what is known as the solar thermostat. Okay? The rate of fusion reactions in the core of the sun depends upon temperature. So, if for some reason the temperature would get higher, I'm going to increase the core temperature. Notice how my thermometer here goes up, right? That means that the rate of nuclear reactions will increase. Well, it's the pressure generated by the nuclear reactions that counterbalances gravity. Gravity wants to collapse every star into a black hole. But these nuclear reactions prevent gravity from doing that. So what happens? Because it overcomes gravity, it's going to push the core out and expand. But when a gas expands, it cools. So if it cools, the fusion rate goes down, gravity comes back down and pushes it back down to its original size. On the other hand, if for some reason the core would get cold, then the fusion reaction rates would slow down. Gravity would then become stronger than the nuclear pressure. It would then collapse the core, but then a collapsing gas heats up. So then as the temperature gets hotter, the reaction rates go faster and there's more pressure to push out against gravity and the core will come back to its original size. So that is why the sun is incredibly stable over human history, for example. Its luminosity hasn't changed very much because of this thermostat, because of the balance between gravity, which is collapsing the sun, and pressure from energy generated by nuclear fusion reactions, the fusion of hydrogen into helium, wants to explode the star. And they balance each other perfectly at the different layers of the sun inside. And so the sun has this naturally built-in thermostat. Now, the last thing I'd like to do, and what I'm going to do here is actually, uh, so energy output, luminosity of the sun remains stable, which is a good thing for us, okay? <laughs> you wouldn't want to, uh, to, to live around a sun that shines wildly. There's another nuclear reaction called the CNO cycle, but I'm not going to talk to you about that because we're running out of time. So instead, I want to go talk about those funny little neutrinos, okay? The neutrino problem. And to begin with, as I said, this is how we know that these nuclear reactions recur. Because notice, the prediction is neutrinos should be created whenever this beta minus decay occurs, when a proton is turned into a neutron. And the neutrinos do stream right out of the sun. The trick is catching them. And to give myself a little break here, I just wanted to show you a little clip from a movie that... Uh, talks about, it's a, bit, it's a clip from the movie where professor, the late Professor David Schramm is talking about what a neutrino is. Neutrino is a, one of the fundamental elementary particles. It happens to be the most weakly interacting of all particles. It just goes whizzing right through us all the time. In fact, every cubic centimeter of the tip of our finger right now has approximately 400 neutrinos whizzing through it at any instant, and yet we don't notice them. Because they go through everything, uh, they turn out to be an important probe of the universe. They end up in astrophysics in cosmology because they came out of the Big Bang. They're important in supernovae because they're the thing that came out of the core of an exploding star. And they're important in our sun. Uh, they're produced in the nuclear reactions that generate the energy for our sun. Photons generated in the core of a star take up to a million years to work their way through the dense gases to the surface. 
Neutrinos, on the other hand... Do you notice that there? The interior of the sun is opaque. All those gamma photons are emitted. But you know, if I took the radius of the sun and divided it by the speed of light, it should take a little over two seconds for a photon of light to escape from the core of the sun to the surface. It takes a million years. Because photons scatter off of free electrons. The entire interior of the sun is ionized. All those electrons are free and they scatter all the photons. So you can see the windy little path. I call it the sailor's walk, drunken sailor's walk, right? Yeah, uh, there, uh, it takes forever for the photons to get, it takes a million years for the photons to get out. But neutrinos are weakly interacting particles. They go straight out in a few seconds. And stream out unimpeded, giving us an immediate indication of the amount of nuclear fusion at the solar core. The neutrino problem is a fascinating one. Uh, almost as much a problem for nuclear physicists as for solar physicists. Every other measurement we've made tells us that our models are right. The kind of science that determines how hot the sun is at the center, what the pressure is, is very straightforward and sensible and simple science that is highly unlikely to be wrong. Uh, the only problem was when we tried to detect neutrinos. Now neutrinos are very hard to detect. The solar neutrino series of experiments has been trying to find those neutrinos. Now, this, pre I have to say, Professor Schramm passed away in an uh, airplane crash about 10 years ago. But this, this video was made in 1994. So this was 18 years ago. That other gentleman, Harold Zirin, he calculates precise models of the interior of the sun. Computer models, they run them on supercomputers, of exactly what the pressure and temperature is at every point inside the sun, radially out from the center. And they came up with a pretty good model of how much hydrogen is reacting every second to helium, how much energy is being generated, how many neutrinos get generated, and they can perfectly match the energy that's emitted from the surface of the sun. The problem that they had, okay, was that their model said you should have X number of neutrinos hitting the Earth every second. Now, neutrinos are hard to detect. They detect them, the first detector was in a gold mine because they have to put them deep underground, and they have a big vat of Clorox. It turns out neutrinos have a probability of interacting with the chlorine atom, an isotope of chlorine, and turning it into argon. And it's the only thing that can do it. So what they'll do is they'll just let this big vat of Clorox sit there for a few days, then they pump out and look for argon gas. And for every argon atom, that's a neutrino detected. But Cosmic rays can also cause false detections. That's why they have to put them deep, deep underground. So, we have detected them, proving that the theory of nuclear fusion reactions is correct. However, we only detected about 30 to 50 percent. And in fact, as the decades went on, it looked like about 30 percent. That the model said that X number of neutrinos should come out every second from the sun, yet here on Earth we only detect a third of the neutrinos. And that was known as the neutrino problem. And in 94, that was still a problem. Well, they finally solved it. Around, and in that video, Professor Schramm goes on to explain the two possibilities. One is that we really don't know precisely what the reactor rate is inside the sun. But that seemed very unlikely because our models fit every other observation of the sun. The other thing is there's something about neutrinos we don't understand. And in 2002, 
it was finally shown that that was the right answer for the neutrino problem. It's, as Professor Schramm said in that video, Will, I didn't show it, but he says later in that video, either our understanding of nuclear fusion reactions or our understanding of neutrinos is wrong. Since this time, we have discovered there are actually three types of neutrinos. There is what's called the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. Now, the electron neutrino is what is generated in the proton-proton chain. Those are the neutrinos created in the core of the sun. And those initial neutron detect or neutrino detectors in the 1960s and 70s, one was in Japan, one's in South Dakota, and the other one was, I think, in Chicago. Um, they all detected electron neutrinos. It turns out that, see, our neutrino detectors only register the electron neutrinos. The Canadians in the last decade created a neutrino detector that could, create the, that could detect the other neutrinos. They can't tell the difference between a tau neutrino and a muon neutrino, but they know they're not electron neutrinos, and they have since detected them. Turns out that when these neutrinos come to us from the sun, two-thirds of them change their flavor, if you will. They change their type from electron to either tau or muon. Because the Canadians have found tau and muon neutrinos that account for the missing 60% that's coming from the sun. So that new, the neutrino problem was a big problem for several decades, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the 90s, and it wasn't until this last decade that, 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 that it was finally solved. But the reason that the neutrino problem is so important, and, and just talking about neutrinos is, again, as in any science, we have to have evidence for the theories that we create. And the neutrinos are the only way that, in a sense, we can look directly into the core of the sun. Because they come out of the sun within seconds, and they're traveling near the speed of light. It takes light eight minutes to get here. Neutrino might take eight and a half minutes, so, or nine minutes. So that's, we're getting a, a, an almost real-time look at the inside of the sun by studying neutrinos that come from the sun. So that's basically what I wanted to show you. I hope you've learned something new. And uh, our telescope, oh, I, 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 I can take time for a few questions before, do, do we have any how they did it? I'm sorry. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, what are the processes of maybe in supernovae explosions, et cetera, et cetera, could be responsible for causing the um, generation of muon and tau neutrinos? As far as I know, the neutrinos that come from a supernova explosion happen when electrons and protons are forced to be become neutrons. And as far as I know, those are electron neutrinos that are created, as far as I know. The thing is that the nearest supernova that happened in, in our age of, of, of high technology was 1987, and they detected so few neutrinos. And the problem was those detectors were built for studying the sun. They, so they didn't have a lot of the precision, especially in timing, uh, to study distant supernovae, and we only, so they really weren't able to, to answer that question. Yes, Dan, your question. What is the percentage of, you know, these reactions that result in heavier elements like carbon? Well, that happens in another stage of a star's life. When the sun turns all its hydrogen into helium, the helium will collapse under gravity and get to even higher temperatures. Those were the slides, there was one slide I passed over. There's a reaction that turns helium to carbon. You, three heliums fuse together to form a 
carbon atom. But you need a much higher temperature. And that only happens in what we call red giant stars. So a red giant star generates energy by turning helium into carbon. And then most stars will stop there. Most stars won't ever get hot enough to fuse carbon. It's only the most massive stars that eventually go supernova are the ones that will turn carbon into heavier elements. You can create oxygen, neon, uh, magnesium, uh, silicone, uh, sulfur, and eventually iron. When you get to iron, iron doesn't fuse. And that's when that, that, that triggers the whole supernova reaction, and that's another lecture. <laughs> Okay, so here's what's going to happen. I would ask you, if you wouldn't mind, um, actually, Dan, could you give me a hand here? Could you put this up on one of those back tables so that people, if you wouldn't mind putting away your clickers as you leave, and I'll stamp student assignments. Our next lecture is in three weeks on February the 4th, and the telescope's open right now. So if you want to go over and look at Jupiter, at least, on a cold, clear, crisp night, go ahead. Thank you, and we'll see you in three